Happy Saturday. It is February 12th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. It's Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Michael, it's Saturday. Well, it's 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 a Super Bowl weekend. It's Super Bowl weekend. Okay. Senility check. This is not a senility check. I'm giving a public service address right now to all you men out there. It's Super Bowl Sunday tomorrow. And I just want to remind you, the day after is Valentine's Day. So don't forget, because, you know, a half-eaten bag of Tostito scoops is not an adequate Valentine's Day present. So so get ahead of it. You got, you got, you got, you got, you got 24 hours to do this. Don't wake up with a with a beer belly on Monday and be like, I forgot about it. So that's my tip for everyone right now. Michael, I'm all ready for our big Valentine's Day date. Where are you taking me? Where would you like to go? It's ladies' choice. It's (laughs) Valentine's Day. Oh my God, honey. I just left Dr. Ember's office. I'm covered in micro-needling and I'm ready to roll. Like, let's do it. By the way, I think I see like the only plastic surgeon in New York who's like, friends with Mary Carr. He's like, yeah, you know, we're talking to my friend Mary Carr. I'm like, God, only in New York, man. Like everybody knows each other. Even like the the guy that's injecting your forehead with Botox, like has literary cred. I was like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, I'm all ready to go out. Like I am like peak me. Just for the listeners, I slacked Ashley earlier this morning. I said, what time do you want to record today? And like, it's very unusual that she doesn't respond right away. Like an hour went by and then finally she's like, I'm at the dermatologist getting my face pricked by needles. So you just, you're totally transparent. I like it. Hey, that's a good day for me. But have you heard about fox eyes? Fox eyes? Yeah. So there's, there's this like plastic surgery trend right now on Instagram and TikTok where people are going into plastic surgeons and having their eyes transformed so that they look like foxes. So like their eyebrows are like lifted up and like straightened and they kind of go up and to the right. So they have this feline appearance. It's very bizarre. When you say foxes, all I think is Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd do, doing two wild and crazy guys. Foxes. <laughs> Michael, now I know you've already got something spectacular planned for Brooke on Valentine's Day. You're probably going to go to the top of Rockefeller Center. Take her out for drinks at the Rainbow Room. I don't know. Tell me about your best Valentine's Day date ever. I hate Valentine's Day. Oh, come on. Such a Scrooge. I'm not a Scrooge. It's it's amateur hour. It's like it's like going out on New Year's Eve. No, don't participate. I've had really creepy ones planned by like women I've dated and passions say creepy, but like, you know, cringy ones. Like people like who wanna give you strawberries dipped in chocolate. I'm like, what oh, this is just I, 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 not for me, thanks. But going out, no thanks. You? Well, it was the best and worst date ever. This is before I got married, clearly. But um, once well, I, I hope so. <laughs> this was last year. No, <laughs> once a guy took me to the Westminster Dog Show one year when it was on Valentine's Day, and it was so awesome. And then another woman showed up. Like I think that he had accidentally either double booked or just thought of me as a friend, but it was very disappointing. So I drank like three beers, spilled one of them over my mobile phone and had to get a new phone. That was the entirety of my story. What a dog. <laughs> what a dog. Well, even if, if you have Valentine's Day plans, if you don't have Valentine's Day plans, join Michael and I. Like, you know, this we, we've got, this is all the Valentine's Day planning you really need right here on Morning Meeting. We've got more action packed in these 30 minutes than anything that a typical date could even promise. We've got Boris Johnson's problems in the UK, which just keep mounting. We've got Jeff Bezos in love. We've got some crazy crimes out of uh, Los Angeles and China and other places. So where would you like to begin? Let's start with love. Okay, finally, at long last, 
the story that I've been dreaming of is coming to fruition in this week's issue of Airmail. Now, our, our Lauren Sanchez obsession is well documented here to re- listeners of Morning Meeting. And finally, we got someone smarter than both of us combined to, to put it together and make sense of it for us. Alexandra Marshall gives us her take on what's really going on. And so in 2019, Jeff Bezos and his wife, longtime wife of 25 years, Mackenzie Scott, got divorced. Bezos immediately took up with Lauren Sanchez, who was a one-time former news anchor. Uh, She was a pilot. She had her own stunt company. And the two of them were like very out in the public, cringely in love. You know, there was first the matter of their leaked text messages uh, from one to another that were kind of embarrassing uh, that it turns out her brother leaked to the National Enquirer. So that was kind of the first word that we had of their relationship. And then we've been following them ever since. I mean, he's so changed, not only in terms of his visuals, like what he's looking like, you know, sort of the, the beefcake vibe that he's exuding these days. But he also is, you know, very emotive and posting on Instagram, like all these kind of like sappy love notes to Lauren Sanchez. So Alex Marshall had to get in there and make sense of it. What do you think about her take? Well, I like her take. It's a smartly reported piece as well. As, as she said, you know, you can sort of look at just the images of the two of them and being handsy. But look, number one, it's always, you know, it's not good when a marriage breaks up. But as Alexander points out, at least it's someone age appropriate. Bezos is 58. She's 49, you know, so it's it's in this same age bracket. He wasn't um, going down the ladder, as it were. From a former Amazon employee who had frequent contact with the couple tells her, you know, a lot of us wanted to roll our eyes at Lauren at first, but, you know, she, as this person says, the thing is, she seeks joy. She goes out of her way to find, to be kind to the crew and staff, and she has that Bill Clinton-like gift of making you feel like the most important person in the room. And they say... You know, before the arrival of Sanchez, Bezos was the least showy member of the Three Comma Club, but she actually seems to have had quite an influence on him, which, as you and I were saying, kind of makes her maybe the most powerful woman in America with the richest man in America, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people have underestimated her as Jeff Bezos' arm candy, but she has real designs on his philanthropical part of the business, right? First and foremost, she's very involved in this Bezos Earth Fund. She's doing a lot of work with his organization to open Montessori preschools. Uh, so she's she's actually like kind of controlling in some capacity a very large fortune, and we should be paying more attention to her. So I, you know, we've been waiting for like the big coming out story in Vogue. To me, that's what I would have predicted to be her um, big first profile of choice. But who knows? She could end up with a big New York Times story or something soon. But I'm expecting that she's got a big PR team in the works and that we're going to be hearing a lot more from her lately. You know the story I want to read? The transcript I want to read is Alex touches on. It was a, it was a dinner that uh, took place at Bezos Beverly Hills estate uh, last week. And that is a dinner for four with Bezos and Lauren and their double date was with Pete Davidson and Kim Kardashian. So Pete should just take that and do it as an SNL skit at that point. First of all, I want to be at that dinner party. Apparently they took over Le Twenty in St. Bart's, which is a great hotel that was recently renovated. They took that over for his big New Year's Eve party. I heard a court. I don't know if I'm supposed to know that. Sorry. It was quite <laughs> the talk of St. Bart's over on the holiday. You're never going to be invited again. Oh, bummer. Um, yeah, it was quite the story around the holidays because... Uh, they were at St. Bart's and the pictures from that party got out everywhere and they were re- were wearing these like 70s outfits and it would, the whole thing just felt like very campy and kind of juvenile, but also kind of charming and sweet. Yeah. You know, they make each other feel young. 
along with some probably CRISPR genetic engineering that helps make you feel young, too. You make me feel so young. Okay, enough with the good people. Let's go on to the villains. I want to start with the weirdo villain story of the week, and it comes from us from Beverly Hills as well, the Los Angeles area, and it's a fun piece of reporting by Jensen Davis, who's one of our editors here. I might sort of call this, someone better call Paw Patrol, because this is about the kidnapping of French bulldogs in Los Angeles, which sort of you might first became aware of it when Lady Gaga's dogs were kidnapped a couple of years ago. And now it's become the hot new strange crime in certain zip codes within Beverly Hills and Los Angeles. This is so weird. It seems like a Sofia Coppola movie waiting to happen. Remember the bling ring? <laughs> this is this is the, uh, the the bulldog ring. It ties in very nicely with our love of all creatures great and small, right? Like I want to see more animals on television. Uh, I mean, this is just, I mean, if you think this is like a crazy banana story, it is. And what's fascinating is it's like in the last year, French bulldogs, as she says, uh, they're not just the hot commodity among celebrities, you know, people like Chrissy Teigen, Jonah Hill, Victoria Beckham, all have made them that accessory to be seen in their Instagrams. But, you know, they're expensive. They usually range from about 4000 up to $30,000 for one. The most expensive of all is the long-haired Frenchie, which can sell for $200,000 or more, according to a French, uh, according to an L.A. breeder. So people now who basically, they were getting walking down the streets with their dog and cars pulling up and dog snatching and running off with them and uh, then either holding them for hostage or selling them on the black market. Right. Crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's sort of like the equivalent of walking down the street and like snatching a diamond ring off of the ground, except this time you have to use a pooper scooper. (laughs) Honestly, it wouldn't be worth it for me. Like having to deal with some yappy dog who's defecating all over the place. Like, no thanks. I'm I'm cool. Like I can just, I'll, I'll just continue to live the lifestyle that I've been living. I mean, I guess, I mean, like, look, there's a high incentive to find a buyer for that dog very quickly. Like get it out of my apartment. Yeah, to me, it's like a, it's also like some subplot in in a, in a Pink Panther movie, you know, watching Clouseau track down the theft of a French bulldog. Only in Los Angeles, folks. Only in Los Angeles. On the on the subject of bizarre criminal activity, I just want to touch on another hot stolen good where there's an enormous black market, and this is a piece of reporting comes from George Pendle this week, and he's pointing out that uh, there's now a global a multi-billion dollar crime network all centered on Rosewood. And it all goes because the Chinese nouveau riche, the one status symbol they all crave is furniture made out of Rosewood. You know, if you think Rosewood is cheap, it's not, as he points out. There was recently some Rosewood folding chairs from the Ming era that sold at Christie's for $7 million. And a corner table from Another dynasty sold for four million, fifty times assessment. So, as they say, a single tree can go for three hundred thousand dollars. So there's this large black market in rosewood. Who knew? Who knew? We'll be sticking with oak. <laughs> White oak, preferably. I don't even know how I would distinguish the difference between rosewood and like some other wood at a party. Like, what are you supposed to say? Like, oh my goodness, is that rosewood? It's just fabulous. Exactly right. And how would you know it's real versus faux rosewood? 
You know, something tells me the people that are buying this stuff are more than happy to tell you. Something tells me like just glance over towards it and you instantly are going to hear, oh, by the way, that's my new rosewood sculpture, you know? Have you noticed the uh, chair over there? It's rosewood. Do, do you like rosewood, Michael? Do you like it? <laughs> do you know rosewood? <laughs> mm. We've got all the romance here on Morning Meeting today. Any other love stories for us? Love stories? No, I don't have a love story, but I have just found a place that I think, if it were, I would love to retire to or maybe disappear into. And that is, I love this story this week. It comes courtesy of Peter Conradi, and it is about a place in the Provence countryside, a 544-acre estate with a 17th-century chateau. It's called Domaine Capitaine d'Anjou, and it's down in Aix-en-Provence. And it is where former French legionnaires go to retire after they leave the service. And many of them have now uh, begun creating a wine there that's pretty popular. So uh, it's made me think, wow, like that's a pretty good place to retire if you're a former French legionnaire. Yeah, especially if there's plenty of wine. Exactly, right? You've done your time. You can sit back now and crush grapes. And If you're looking for an escape, you don't have to go to France or retire because we have another idea for you this week, courtesy of Alec Lebrano. He's been spending some time in Florida. Many of our readers know Alec is based in Paris, and thank God for that because he's covering all the essential restaurant and hotel news for us from there. But he's been spending some time in Sarasota, of all places, and it turns out that the hottest place to stay in Florida is not the Ritz-Carlton in Seaside or wherever that might be. It's actually in Sarasota, where a new organization called Architecture Sarasota has been opening up private homes that are modernist masterpieces. It turns out this was a big architecture hub in the 1950s and 60s. And they're opening up these homes for private stays. So you basically get to check into one of these incredible architecturally significant homes, check in for two nights, enjoy the pool, enjoy the beach, check on out, and feel like you've been living in the era of Don Draper. It sounds pretty cool. You know, isn't that cool? Like that to me, now that to me is like an experience you can't get anywhere else. Did you see the pictures of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's home in Architectural Digest this week? Yeah, I did. It's like, you know, my joke with with AD is always like, you know, someone's about to sell their house when it's on the cover of Architectural Digest. It's like free marketing. But what, exactly. did you, what did you make of it? Well, I what I make what I make of it is what George Caldracus makes of it in in the diary this week. A lot of people point out they were ooing and aahing. They were ooing and eyeing over uh, in one of the photographs. You see a Ruth Asawa, one of her loopy sculptures hanging in the background, and oops. It's it's you might 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 say, oops, there it is. Is 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 it was not one of Asawa's signature wire looping sculptures. It was done by someone else. And here Gwyneth was sort of called out. You know, if you're gonna have, you can't afford a real one. The photograph was duly cropped and the caption corrected. So I guess you know. Gwynny just doesn't want to pay the prices for Asawa's, which go, you know, in the, in the millions. Recently, the top auction price so far is $5.3 million for one of her pieces. So I guess she decided to just pay for one of the lookalikes, which tops out around 35000 So it just goes to show you, see, someone could have had real rosewood or faux rosewood, Gwyneth. 
chooses a, a faux Asawa. You know, what I liked about this story is, is that it proves that she is human after all. Like, she's cheap. And that's a virtue, I think. It's like she's not just a robot who buys expensive vibrators. Like, she actually sees the value in being somewhat budget conscious. And I like that about her. So, Gwyneth, I tip my hat to you. I don't approve of, like, regular people buying knockoff art. But I do approve of Gwyneth Paltrow buying knockoff art because it just seems so out of character. It's delicious. I have no problem with buying a inspired by piece. But if you're going to pose for Arc Digest, maybe don't try and pass it off as the real thing. Yeah, exactly. And like she's done all these videos and Instagram posts about how she's like spent hours working on the design, you know, days. And, you know, she has posted so much about how much time she spent meticulously curating this home in Santa Barbara. And it's like, oh, yeah, like you didn't even know like the provenance of one of the most important pieces of art. Anyway. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. I mean, I bet Gwyneth is going to be taking an extra dose of Goop Glow after all of this bad press. Okay, Michael, here we are. You know, we've tried to make sense of this Boris Johnson situation, but why should we do it ourselves when we've got Stu Heritage in our back pocket? Stu is not only a storied columnist and political commentator and an astute mind on all things British, but uh, he's now here to join us to tell us about what's going on with Boris Johnson. Welcome, Stu. Hiya. What on God's green earth is happening over there, Stu? (laughs) That's a question the entire country is asking. It's not even on a daily basis, just hour by hour, something new is going wrong. We've stunned you. Like, where do you begin? It's so crazy. Stu's like, where do I begin with this? <laughs> I know. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to just spool back in my mind. So he's in, he's in a lot of trouble in terms of his kind of political future. Primarily, it's down to his behaviour during COVID in that he just seemed to have nonstop parties throughout when the rest of the country was kind of very self-sacrificingly observing very strict lockdown rules. So, you know, we couldn't Nobody could, well, everywhere in the world was the same. You couldn't go and see your elderly relatives. If, uh, you, you know, somebody died, you weren't allowed to go to their funeral. And then there were just all these pictures suddenly started to emerge of, um, of sort of Downing Street garden parties. They're just full of the most sort of incredible details. A junior member of staff, for example, was dispatched to a, like a convenience store with a suitcase, they were expressly told to fill it up with alcohol for the party. So all, all this time, people are kind of, you know, at home making bread, making their own bread and forgetting what it's like to see people. They're just having these kind of crazed... What's amazing about it is it all seems to be, and I don't think this has been confirmed anywhere, but it all seems to be coming from Dominic Cummings, who was a special advisor to Boris Johnson, and he just seems to know where all the bodies are buried. And every time he looks like the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson specifically are sort of getting out from under a crisis, he'll just drop a new bit of information about another party or there'll be a photo. There was a photo just dropped yesterday of Boris standing next to an open bottle of champagne when the whole country was supposed to be sort of sheltering in place. It wasn't just a bottle of champagne, but wasn't it like the guy at the desk had a lay around his neck and they were, it was like, it was like, wasn't it like an office Christmas party? Let's play a trivia game. It was just like, I mean, it just is like, who's in charge here? Are there any adults in the room? From a sort of a, just a approval rating perspective it's very 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 difficult to kind of align yourself even if you're one of his biggest supporters to know that he was having all these sorts of he was just breaking the rules willy-nilly while everybody else was you know very fastidiously 
staying at home. To, to put a point on it, the, it seems to me, as, as you touched on, is the real error here is, you know, is, is, is what's, what's unforgivable from the British people. And I guess many people who look at this is like, is you ask us as our leader to take on a shared sacrifice and then you don't share in the sacrifice, right? And there's, people will go through a lot and they'll put up with a lot, but when it's, when it comes to that, isn't the real, that's what people are just like, that's sorry, far, you, you, you can't, you can't win me back on that, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. The, the sort of the barrage of excuses that came out in the wake of all these revelations. Johnson was saying at one point that he wasn't aware of the rules and, you know, technically it was a work event and not a party and all these different things. But he was in charge of making the rules and it's, <laughs> What may have really tipped people off in the UK is there were two parties which took place the night before Prince Philip's funeral, right? And at at a funeral which the 95-year-old queen sat alone, as her government told her to do, alone in the church, obeying official guidelines, mourning her husband in solitude. And meanwhile, two parties— the night before were taking place where everyone, where it seemed like mini debauchery, right? Is that, that kind of really crystallized it, right? Yeah, because it's such a, I don't want to say iconic because it was of a funeral, but that's sort of the defining, almost the defining image of the entire kind of lockdown in this country is the, this frail old lady, the queen, sitting completely alone on this huge pew um, at this sparsely attended funeral for her husband. And to know, to know that the government were all sort of, sweating off hangovers. I don't know. It seems really unforgivable. But that party caused, I mean, Boris Johnson had to formally apologise to the Queen. And like I've, I've done bad <laughs> things in my job before. I've never had to formally apologise to the Queen of England. That's pretty bad. Stu, on that note, I mean, Boris has gotten himself in so many scrapes before, but he has this gift. He's a silver-tongued orator, and he's managed to talk his way out of pretty much everything. But it's not looking like he can talk himself out of this. Why is that? He's cultivated this sort of persona as an amiable klutz, almost, in that he's kind of shambolic and he never quite knows what he's doing. And I think when things are going good, that's fine. But it feels like such a betrayal of trust. And it just it just seems like he's running out of road. I think especially that the Conservative Party in this country is supposed to be, you know, kind of the party of power, they call it, because it's it's very, very good at... As soon as it gets a sniff of trouble, anything that might kind of damage the brand, the party will move and get rid of the, the leader to kind of keep keep where they are. And that's happened, I mean, even in my lifetime, that's happened probably two or three times. And none of it has been as shambolic as, as Boris Johnson. So I, I feel like it's it has to be coming. For American listeners, I love the, the, the theater and the drama of unseating a prime minister, which doesn't really exist here in the in the U.S., which is, so his ministers, the, the people in, in his party can secretly submit letters of no confidence, right? If they get to a certain point, that can call for his ouster, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I love just like the mysteriousness of that, right? Because he doesn't know how many knives are being, you know, sort of sharpened right now and stuck in a box and ready to, to, to stab him, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, you're right. It's such theater. Everybody, all the, all the MPs are being very cagey about who is um, submitting letters and who isn't and who's kind of angling for his job. There's lots of rumors that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, I mean, there are photos of him at parties as well, so I don't know how well that's going to fly, but uh, rumours that he's he will be sort of putting in a leadership bid as well. And it's like, it's real, it's real sort of house of cards stuff. It's also so stunning about Johnson right now, and again, just to frame it for the American audiences, 
what, less than two years ago, in the last election, he won like an overwhelming landslide, right? Swept into office with probably the greatest majority since Thatcher had assembled, right? Yeah. And now, good time Boris is is basically caught with his pants down and sort of having to talk his way out of this, which just doesn't seem possible. And you knew again as you quote in his piece. I mean, there's the old Richard Nixon line where he had to sort of, he had to say in his own press conference in Watergate, "I am not a crook." But as you remind us, Boris, things are so bad. He hired a new press person, and what did what did his press person say at his very first? interview trying to reassure the public about Johnson. What did he say? <laughs> the the exact quote is, he is not a complete clown. If you were a betting man, do you think he survives? And if so, for how long? I've been wondering this because he sort of endured such a lot. I mean, I've, I've said this, I say this all the time, but I, I, it feels like this is as bad as things can get. And he's still clinging on. I don't know. I think, I honestly, I think he might survive. Well, Stu, thank you for making sense of it all for us. No doubt we'll be continuing the conversation soon. I hope so. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you. Give all of our love to Robin and your sweet boys. I will. All right, Michael. Well, thank goodness we have Stu to make sense of it all for us. Yeah. Wow. Who knows? By the time this podcast comes out, things could have already uh, changed again for Boris. Yeah, you never know. I mean, like, we thought all the political fun left when Trump left office here in the U.S. It turns out, no, Boris has just picked up the mantle of absurdity. Not a complete clown. (laughs) No, no. No. Well, one more reminder, Michael. It is some semblance of Fashion Week here in New York. We've got a couple of shows, not a ton, some presentations. And if you want to know where you stack up in terms of your self-worth as an editor, there's one way to determine that. And do you know what it is? Yes. If your invite has an A on it, not a B, but or a C, an A always indicates what? You are in the front row, right? Hello. The front row is the only place to be, or at least it used to be for fashion editors who have now seen their status usurped by a new crop of influencers. And, you know, it's maddening to some of them. And in some ways it makes sense because these people have half a million followers on Instagram and when they post pictures of a product, it tends to sell. So there is a little war of sorts being played out in these front rows. And Bridget Foley, a new to airmail writer, but a very storied force in the world of fashion criticism, is explaining it all to us in this week's issue. It's a, it's a good piece of cultural contextualization, as I like to call it. I mean, look, we've been there, right? We've attended so many fashion shows over the years that, you know, there's always the, there's always that sense of abject horror. Like, you know, when you've been delegated to like, you know, the terrible seat. And then you're looking for the, the publicist like, uh, excuse me, um, um, pointing at your invite, uh, you know. You're like, why am I 18th row at BCBG? What happens? No one values me. It is the only industry where you're self-worth, like where you're lined up every season in front of all of your peers and told exactly how important you are. You know, it really does telegraph that. All right, Michael. Well, before we go off into this good weekend of fashion, please, anything to recommend? I've got one thing to recommend. Speaking of royalty and the things in the UK, I'd been missing the crown and, and all things Peter Morgan. And I decided to sort of go back and search out Peter Morgan films that I hadn't seen yet. And one I, I came across, which I remember when it came out, but I missed it. It's called Longford. Have you ever heard of Longford? 
No. No? Okay, this was out on, uh, it's still available on HBO Max. And it is, it came out, oh, about 15 years ago. And it tells the tale of Lord Longford. Uh, and it's play, he's played by the incomparable Jim Broadbent. And uh, he uh, focuses, he was a lifelong fascinating guy who went through major conversions in his life, went from conservative to labor, went from Church of England to Catholicism, driven by his faith. And he spent his whole career in, in working also for prison reform. And it tells this amazingly true story of his relationship over decades with this notorious killer of children named Myra Hindley and how he's drawn into her uh, orbit and hopes to win parole for her. You know, in this moment when we're wondering about what is the what does forgiveness mean and uh, what is trust, but it's really about how his faith his faith leads him to trust beyond what he sees before his eyes, and he's ultimately has his sort of very being questioned by what happens. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of writing by Morgan, an amazing piece of acting by Jim Broadbent, Samantha Morton, Andy Serkis, and Lindsay Duncan. And uh, I would, um, if you're looking for a great 90-minute thriller full of um, beautiful performances, this is it. All right, sign me up. Sounds great. And you, dear? A little pro tip for anyone living in New York or coming to New York soon. As you know, or as you probably know, we have lifted our mask mandate here in town. And let me tell you, it is officially the roar in 2022s, especially in lower Manhattan. So this week I went out. You you were out last night? Yes, I was. Where did you go? If you're wondering where I still have mascara underneath my eyes, now you know. Um, I ha- I went to this really great, it's, a, it's called a piano bar, but it's really just like a cool restaurant with a pianist. It's called The Nines, and it just opened in the former Acme space on Great Jones Street downtown in the NoHo neighborhood of Manhattan. So it's called The Nines. It's the brainchild of John Nightich, who's a nightlife impresario here in town. He was the owner and operator of Acme, which was the CNBC nightclub spot for many years, and it closed a few years ago, and he's reopened The Nines in that space. And I went last night, and it just felt like one of the special spots that makes New York, New York. I walked in, nobody was wearing a mask. It felt like pre-pandemic times. People were beautifully attired. They were having fun. They were drinking martinis and charming little glasses. It was an absolute blast. The piano music was great. And I felt like I knew half the room, which was another fun piece of it, right? It just was that kind of crowd of friends. Did you sing a song? I was really tempted to, Michael, but I didn't. I spared oh, everyone for my book. Right. You know, we left around 10, 10 or 10, 15. And I, I'm guessing that the singing starts later because we were still in the throes of eating. You and I are going back. We're going to do a song. You do what? I think we should. It might be our new. It might be our new downtown spot. I went with some friends, and they were comparing it to the Carlisle on the Upper East Side. But I think it's got a better vibe than the Carlisle. No offense, love you, Carlisle, but it just has a different uh, kind of a younger sensibility. It's a little bit more fun, a little bit more loose, but. The food was exquisitely, I mean, the food was great, which, you know, I never usually say that about like a cocktail party type of situation, but oh my God, they have a baked potato with caviar that I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to say that I ordered it and ate the whole thing. So good. Well, I think we're going to get our peaches and herb reunited and feel so good. We're going to do that duet. Maybe we even film it and put it on the web (laughs) podcast, you know? I think we should. Next up, Michael and Ashley do karaoke. All right, before we get totally out of control, Michael, thank you all for joining us so much. We're so happy to be here with you. And Michael, please read us out.
produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly or our own respective handles. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.